Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Yeah, so as, as you uh, heard me allude in, uh, in the prayer, usually on, uh, uh, on Mother's Day uh, or Father's Day, we think uh, balance some of this, this out. And, I, and Darren and I thought it would be just fun to take advantage, because I don't know that we've ever done this or not, and this is a different way of preaching than I normally do. I like to take normally a text and just un- unpack it completely. But today I want to take a theme and just follow it through uh, the Old Testament, uh, and, and we're aware most of the time uh, people have struggles with the image of God as Father for a lot of reasons. Uh, but as we start to deal with the image of God as Mother, we discover folks have got problems with that too, uh, because maybe your relationship with your mom was was tense or difficult, or maybe because it is currently tense or difficult. Uh, and so m- maybe there's not a whole lot of help with that, uh, but at the same time, I, what it does do is unpack how hard it is to talk in human language about God without bringing uh, some of the pain of the metaphors uh, that we use, the images that we use, the symbols that we use into that conversation, uh, and to allow God to be bigger than any of our words about him is really uh, probably really important. And if you take nothing else away from the sermon this morning, uh, at least take that away. Um, I do want to say, uh, and, and pardon me for bogging down here in this, um, but I, I want to I, I say that when we turn to Scripture for images of God, we need to understand a couple of things basically. And that may inform some of our thinking about God as father as well as God as mother or with feminine images that scripture is culturally conditioned. Scripture is culturally conditioned. That doesn't undermine it. It just, in my opinion, gives it even more authority once we understand the cultures to which it was written. It was written with a specific set of cultural uh, contexts and standards and reflects the concerns the realities of those cultures. Uh, That doesn't, again, undermine whatever we mean by inspiration, but what it does say, because I believe the text of Scripture is inspired by God, but I'm aware, I I, I believe that God is aware of the cultures into which that text comes and speaks in ways that address those cultures and in ways that those cultures would understand. Does, Does that make sense? So if he were, if the text of scripture were written to us today, it would be conditioned by our American or Western culture uh, and have images and symbols uh, that are reflective of that. We ought not be surprised then that when we look at the text of scripture written over a period of, of, of roughly 1500 years, that it has those cultural conditionings. Uh, and that doesn't undermine it, it just, it, it is what it is. We have to pay attention to that uh, because it can't be the word of God to us first. It has to be the word of God to the people to whom it was written first. And it can't now mean what it never then meant. So I want to know what it meant to the people to whom it originally came so that I can understand what it means to us to, today in the here and now. Yeah. And we try as hard as we can. Darren is, is really, really good at this, at contextualizing and framing 
and, and putting this into, into place. Uh, so with that in mind, there are a couple of things that inform our conversation uh, relative to the ideas or images of God. The first one is that the overwhelming majority of the cultural context into which the text of Scripture, both Old and New Testament came, particularly, however, Old Testament was patriarchal, was hierarchically structured, and was male-dominated. That will inevitably influence all of the language that the text of Scripture is written in. Uh, and, and that means then that the, the language of culture uh, tends to be towards the masculine. Second, most of the cultural context in which serve as kind of a backdrop, particularly again of the Old Testament, uh, had very, very strong mother earth or goddess cults and imagery that were part of the, the ethos. You see this in the story of creation, for example, uh, in which Moses is deliberately and intentionally pushing back against, as a, almost a polemical uh, document, uh, against the worship of, uh, uh, of the God. For example, you'll notice in, 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 in Egypt, there was a strong uh, goddess worship. There was a strong river worship, water worship. There was a strong worship of the sun and the moon, and they were independent names so that when the creation story is told, they don't, God doesn't create the sun and the moon, he creates a greater light and a lesser light, referring to function rather than identity. Does, does that make sense? So, so when you have this strong goddess worship, nature worship, uh, that then starts to influence the resistance to the use of feminine imagery uh, driven by that polemic. And then the final thing, and I hope this isn't boring to you, but it, it, it's important as we get into this to understand why we're dealing with the text that we're dealing with. The second thing is that both Hebrew and Greek, which are the original source languages of the New Testament and Old Testament respectively, have gender attached to nouns. Uh, any of you who have any of the Romance language, Spanish or Latin, or as a, as a, any of the languages that have Latin as a backstory, uh, know what I'm talking about. Does everybody know what I mean? So that when I learned, for example, uh, the French word for pants, which I now can not remember, <laughs> I discovered that, that it was masculine. Uh, and, and Spanish works in very similar ways. That does not mean that the thing to which the noun refers is masculine. It means that the word itself is masculine, which then influences pronouns that flow out of that. So the pronouns have to, referring back to a masculine noun, be masculine. So the most uh, pointed, pointed example of this is that the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is guess what? a masculine noun, which means all of the pronouns that refer back to it have to be masculine, creating the idea that, in fact, God is masculine when, in fact, it's just the word that is, not God. You, you track with me? Okay. It's also, and here's where it gets really messy, a plural noun. So all of the pronouns referring back to it have to be masculine plural nouns, which creates all kinds of crazy 
right? But notice what happens here. That doesn't mean that God is male. It means that the word for God is masculine, right? Uh, For me, the most egregious example of this, and not relative to God, but uh, relative to qualifications for elders, as it turns out, in 2 Timothy, where Paul just lists a whole list of qualifications. If you read that, you will notice in most of the English translations, all all of the pronouns are male, are masculine. However, in the original Greek language, not a single masculine pronoun for qualifications for elders occurs in that chapter, not one. But here we are, because we're limited to the English translation, thinking that because all these masculine pronouns are there, that must mean elders have to be men. No, no, no. That's not what actually is going down in that passage. Um, so, so all of that influences how we think about God. And, and, and the reason I want to take just a, take a, a couple of minutes to talk about that is because we need to know that any image, any language, any word, any portrait, any picture of God that you can possibly generate is too small for him. He is grander, greater, more majestic, more wonderful, more beautiful than any word that you could ever, any image that you could ever, any picture, any portrait that you could ever use to describe or portray him. He is so much more than that. But we get stuck in our images because they're helpful to us. We need handles. We are people who need handles, yeah? And and, and unfortunately, what happens is that we think our handles are the full revelation of the truth. No, they're just handles. Other people have other handles. Doesn't invalidate yours because theirs are different, but you don't get to invalidate theirs because they're not the same as yours. Does that all make sense? So when we get into this, here's the first passage of Scripture. Notice how hard Moses is working to say this to us. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created humankind. Unfortunately, the translation is mankind. Humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice what he's saying here. God is not male or female. God is is both male and female and the relationship in between male and female. So it's not this or this, it's this and this and the and in between. God requires all of humanity in all of its gendered forms to image him. You track? All right. So Every man, woman, and child ever born in the history of the world from, from past to the, to, to the end of time, all of that is the image of God. All of it. So that has certain implications for how we think about this. There is a, it's not just the gendered parts, but it's the relationality. In fact, I would argue, now I'm starting to sound like a professor, aren't I? Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to try and tone this down. But, but I would argue that that means that the single thing that is most important about our understanding of God is not that he is represented by males and females, but it's the and that's the most important part. God is represented most by relationship. Please notice how this then works its way through the Old and New Testaments. 
What is Jesus most concerned about? That we love one another and show prove ourselves and so prove ourselves to be his disciples. It is by loving one another that we enter into the relational love that father has for son, son has for father, and we have in them, yeah? So that's the first passage. The second one is, is, a, is a little more uh, 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 in keeping with how we think of things. This is, comes from one of the minor prophets, a guy by the name of Hosea, who has a, a really challenging life uh, because he has to go to the people of Israel uh, and tell them that they have broken God's heart, that they have stepped out on their mom, that their uh, heart has, that their behavior has, has dissed God. And here's the plaintive cry of God as mother. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms. They didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with love. The, the Hebrew in behind there are the, uh, the primary characteristics of God, human kindness with love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. You got the image? It's a beautiful portrait of a mom who is holding daughter's son's hands and leading them in the learning to walk. And when they fall down, picks them up and comforts them, right? Who whole, picks them up and, and, and her, her cheek wet with their tears. That's the image. So you can see how heartbroken then God is when Israel steps out on God because they have turned their back not on the one who they worship augustly in distance, but the one who has drawn near to them and they to her. So God here is pictured as a, as a mom teaching her toddler to walk, picking them up to comfort them and heal them when they fell. You know how this is. If you've got kids of a certain age um, and, and mom is near when they have catastrophes, the response is often different than when dad is near, right? My boys, uh, I've got a particular image in mind with one of my boys uh, skateboarding. As a little kid, we got them as little tiny Snoopy skateboards back in the day, right? And the, my guys were really good at it until they hit a little piece of gravel or something and then they went flying, right? And what had happened is my, my middle son, David, would, would kind of look around. Did anybody see? And if mom saw, it was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It was disaster. It was, and Jude would come and pick the boy up and exactly this image, right? And if he saw that it was me that was watching, he would get up, he would brush himself off, he would clean his own tears and away he'd go again, right? The image, but why? Because the image of God as mother calls forth different responses from us than the image of God as father. It's not that one is right and the other wrong, it's that they're both right and there's a whole lot more right that neither of them convey. Here's another one that I find quite amusing um, because it's lovely when you read it in the poster board form and then you start to dig into what's going on and it's like, ooh, that took a nasty turn. Here it is here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. Like an eagle, 
that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. This is a description of God as an eagle, a mother eagle, because it's the mother eagle that does this. The father eagle is off hunting. It's the mother eagle that teaches the eaglets to fly. And that's the image here. Here's the problem. Notice how she does this. The mother eagle builds this, and you've seen them, you've, you, you've perhaps seen them as you drive through, through it's the, the North American eagles are no different than the eagles back in the day, right? Where they would take the highest height on a cliff on the top of a tall tree and build this nest multi-layered, sometimes three and four and five feet deep. And at the very bottom of this was sharp prickly thorns and brambles and, all, and then all of the downy stuff and everything. And the little baby eagles would be born into that and then hatch. And then uh, gradually, mama would start to what? Pull out all the soft stuff and throw it overboard, right? Until finally the little eaglets are like, hey, 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 where, where, what is poking me in the butt here? And sooner or later, they'd climb up a little higher, and then they'd what? They'd fall out of the nest, hundreds of feet down the... And what would mama do? She would spread those majestic eagle's wings, and she would soar down at fantastic... And the little bird is just flopping away. And mama would come underneath and catch that bird on her wings and carry it up put him back in the nest until he got uncomfortable enough to fall out again, and then mama would come and sweep and pick him up. What's she doing? Teaching the boy to fly is what she's doing. Because sooner or later, mama's not gonna rescue you anymore. You need to learn how to fly. Oh, and by the way, if the natural discomfort of the nest would not unsettle the eaglet enough that they would launch themselves out of the nest, she'd throw them out. Okay, so anybody feel God's doing that kind of stuff with you right now? You know, God is mama is gonna make sure that you know how not to be comforted only, but that you know how to fly. Because the purpose of having children is to get rid of them. Right? Anybody with, I mean, if you've, if you've got a six-month-old, they're already starting to leave home. They're already starting to, and, and, the, and the task here of the mama eagle is to release the child with capacity for its own life. Here's another one that's a little bit more um, uh, comforting, but broken in, uh, uh, coming out of a season of brokenness. Isaiah 66, 13. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You will be comforted over Jerusalem. You follow the image of the Old Testament narrative, and I know that as part of our, our journey, uh, you've, many of you have been reading this um, uh, along with us, and here's this great prophet who uses this feminine image of a, of, a, of, a, of a mother who stands arms around her child as they watch uh, what the child has depended on burn, uh, invaded by foreigners, catastrophic loss. It's hard for me to um, 
speak of this without thinking of my own mom and my own, frankly, for my, my, my mom died when I was 30. So I only had a few years in my professional ministry to call her. But I remember the very first time I called her was my first funeral. It was a 12-year-old boy. Uh, he and his dad were tearing down a barn. We lived up in Edmonton, and they were outside and had a single pole and uh, some miscommunication, and the barn collapsed on top of the boy. That was the first funeral. At the end of that, I didn't call my theology professors. I did not call uh, my mentors in ministry. I called my mom. That's this. When you see the bottom fall out. And mom doesn't make it all better. Did you notice that? Mom doesn't say everything will be fine. Because by this stage, folks, we're aware. Not everything's going to be fine. Some stuff's going to hurt for a long time. And the task of the mom is not to fix everything. That was, that was good when you were three or two. Is anybody else hearing music? Okay. I just always want to check at my age. You never know. When the, it's the call. Uh, but anyway, um, so, 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 so in, in those moments of, of, of catastrophic loss, Mom doesn't, doesn't pat you on the head and pretend it doesn't matter. Mom says, I know this hurts. There's nothing we can do about it. Let me hold you. And even though we were 200 miles separate, I had a sense of her holding me. My, candid to be honest, my mom wasn't really good at it. Uh, she was a, a, a tough, tough emergency room nurse trained in the Second World War. So she had seen the worst that people can do to one another. Uh, but still, still. Do, do, do you know what I'm, that's the image here. Um, here's another one, so, uh, Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast, the one she's nursing, and have no compassion on the child she has born? Even if this were possible, even if she may forget, I, God, will not forget you. This is a, a powerful and graphic image that he takes the most extreme form of attachment that he can possibly gender and say, even if this can be broken, my heart connection to you, never broken. That's the image. So unimaginable. Please notice, that means it's true for you today, too. Even though you feel like you have been abandoned, even though you feel like you have been forgotten, even though you feel like he doesn't know where you are and what it is that you are going through, it's his character that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So this sense, by the way, this sense that he has might be actually his training you into flying. It might be training you into walking by faith. It might be training you into an adult son and daughter identity. So 
Isaiah 42, 14, another graphic image. For a long time, God says, I have kept silent. I've been quiet. I've held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp. I pant. The image here is of God uh, uh, on the move to protect and defend his people. Things have built up even at their own hands against themselves, and God finally has had enough. And it's, he used, but the image he uses is not the building up of anger. The image he uses is of pregnancy, when the baby now demands to be born. That's the image. And the, and the response of the mom in this, a crying out, a gasping, a panting, is the image that drives the, 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 the um, response. One from the New Testament. Uh, one that kind of gets sandwiched in between two major ones in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 begins with the story of the, of the lost sheep, right? And ends with the story of the lost boys. And right in between is the story of the lost coin, except there we discover what these three are about. They're not about the object lost. They are about the person seeking. These three parables, the parable of the prodigal son isn't really about the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the waiting father. The parable of the lost sheep is not about the lost sheep. It's about the searching shepherd. Why? Because Jesus is wanting us to understand something about God in these two images. So sandwiched right in between it is this little story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends, her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I'd say to you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The image here is of a woman who has 10 coins given to her probably as a dowry. Her whole security is wrapped up. Her whole identity is wrapped up in those 10 coins and loses one of them. And diligently searches the house. And when she finds it, rejoices. That image drives how, our, how we are to understand God. My favorite one, though, well, my second favorite one, my favorite one is a new one, is Psalm 23. You're familiar with it. The Lord is my shepherd. Did you know that there are at least as many women shepherds in Israel in ancient times as there are male shepherds? And that the reason we translated he is because of C.3 back at the introduction. <laughs> Shepherd is a masculine noun to which all pronouns have to refer in the masculine. So it could just as easily be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She makes me lie down in green pastures. She leads me beside the quiet water. She restores my soul. Huh? The outcome of that kind of trust is Psalm 131, which we've talked about before. The psalmist, notice how he gets to this place. My heart is not proud, Lord. 
My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters, with things that are too wonderful for me, which is, by the way, just about everything these days. I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. People of God, put your hope in the Lord now and forever. What trains the soul in this kind of confident trust? Notice the image here is not of a nursing child. A child that nurses is a child that demands. It's a 24-7 demand note. It's the 3 o'clock in the morning feedings. That's not this image. It's a weaned child that leans against mom, not for nourishment, not for demand, but simply out of delight, out of comfort. That is the image that we are invited into as we contemplate the idea of God as our mother, God as one who comforts us when we fall, God as one who uncomforts us when it's time to learn to fly and carries us as we learn to do so, God who holds us close and never forgets us, having been bonded to us like a child nursing with mom. That's the image that we are invited into as we consider the character and nature and goodness of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.